0: Good morning. You know, there was a fashion a few years ago for organisations to come up with something they called a mission statement. This was a sentence or two, maybe a short paragraph that that, that neatly and pithily, hopefully, summed up what the organisation was all about. So you could then use it to clearly and succinctly communicate to customers, or staff, or business partners, banks, whatever, anyone who was interested. Over the years, the boards and the management teams and and staff working parties up and down the land sat around tables and in conference rooms at at, um, away days arguing the toss over the nuance of every little syllable and word of their mission statement. And in the end, what came out was so often just anodyne and didn't really enlighten anyone very much and the organisation wasn't really that much better off. The activity, but it's been done. Boxes have been ticked, and the consultants have earned their wedge, and everyone's happy. And apart from the poor saps who've wasted several days of their lives really coming up with it, of course, but time they're never likely to get back, believe me. Some of the worst I've come across are from companies that really should have done better, you'd have thought. McDonald's. McDonald's, theirs is probably enough to make you feel rather queasy. McDonald's brand mission is, is is to be our customer's favourite place and way to eat and drink. Our worldwide operations are aligned around a global strategy called the Plan to Win, which centre on an exceptional customer experience, people, products, place, price and promotion. Just trips off the tongue, doesn't it? You'd have thought a company with their resources would have been able to run it through a grammar check maybe as well. I'm sure Rachel and Bob will spot that one. Answers on a postcard. Avery who's a company, if you don't know, that makes sheets of sticky address labels that you put through your printer to stick on envelopes or whatever. And they've got a wonderful one. Their mission statement is to help make every brand more inspiring and the world more intelligent. That's great, but how on earth are sticky labels going to make me inspiring and more intelligent? Maybe just a teeny bit of an overreach? can't blame them for aiming high, I suppose, but... Uh, Avon, Bing Bong, Avon, famous cosmetics company. One that's two hundred and forty-nine words long, and it goes on and on, covering everything from surpassing their competitors to increasing shareholder value to fighting breast cancer. I won't read it out because we haven't got all day, but you get the idea. Now, to be fair to those companies, it's really not an easy thing to do, and it's particularly hard for a committee to to agree on one. So at least they try. But you know, when we come to today's passage, what struck me was that actually, centuries before the concept of a mission statement was even thought of, Paul, chained in prison, reaching out to encourage the young elder Timothy, coined a pretty good one in those few verses we're looking at this morning. So let's read our passage. We're continuing in 2 Timothy, we're in chapter 2, and we're looking at verses 8 to 10, and the words... Shall be up on the screen in front of you. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word does not change. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that's in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. Amen. Now, it's quite possible to look at this this passage as a a personal statement for Paul, and so, by extension, every Christian in many ways, even perhaps for the church as a whole. Paul manages to succinctly, which is the key bit, sum up where he's at, and then put in a couple of sentences what he's about and what he's trying to achieve. And that's something, as we've seen, that even massive companies with multi-million pound budgets can't always do encapsulates the Great Commission, why we, as the Church, do what we do. Why we're committed to preaching the Gospel and to supporting Worldwide Mission, to reaching out to our neighbours with the good news of Jesus Christ. So why do we make the effort? Why do we make the sacrifice? You know, it costs over £100,000 a year to run Regent Chapel and that comes mostly out of our own pockets. We have four members of staff and But it takes, above that, hundreds of hours of what would otherwise be free time to to run sunbeams and Sunday school, operate the technology, to run home groups, youth work, and so on and so forth. So why do we, or or should we, make that collective sacrifice? Why do we bother? Why on earth does it matter? Why does the church even exist as an entity? Why is it enough for just... Knowing that God is in his heaven, is all wells with the world for us. Isn't it good enough for us to just snuggle up on our couch at home and their own cosy little faith and just get on with life? Well, in the tradition of all the best servants, I've got three points to make. And they all contain the letter M, which is a double bonus for alliteration. Firstly, then, we're driven by a love for the Master. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David this is my gospel. So why would the Spirit of God inspire Paul to remind Timothy to remember Jesus Christ? Timothy had been brought up in the truth of the gospel from being a little child. Paul had mentored him and written to him at least once before. He was an elder, fulfilling the role of pastor to his congregation. Well as a church leader myself, one of the elders here at Regent, I, I can testify that it's all too easy to get caught up in the work that I'm doing and neglect the worship of the one whom I'm doing it for. Get focused on the detail and forget the big picture. And Timothy was under that same danger. And it's a risk for all of us, whatever station we are, whatever role we fulfill in, in, in our church, we can forget why we're doing what we're doing. We need to remember that everything that we do, we do because of Jesus Christ. He's the one who changed our lives. And just as Paul says, this is my gospel, not the gospel, not a gospel. He says, my gospel. It's personal. It's Jesus' impact on Paul's own life that's his motivation. If Paul was inspired to remind Timothy of these things, then we do well to follow his example and follow his advice. In all that we do, Christ will be preeminent. He'd be our inspiration and motivation. You believe that Christ commissioned us and as believers we're to go into the world and make disciples. Every one of us. Every believer that's watching this morning. Regardless of what your specific calling may be as treasurer, as Sunday school, or teacher, as pianist, as whatever it might be. We have a responsibility to honour the Lord and remember what he's done for us and asked us to do. Paul gave us three examples earlier in the chapter that Andy took us through last week. A soldier, a farmer and an athlete. The soldier's got to be disciplined. The athlete's got to have integrity and the farmer works hard. So the sacrifice we're expected to make has all those things. Discipline, integrity and hard work. But then in this passage that we're looking at this morning, it follows on straight away. It says... He says in effect, so you think that's hard? Well, remember Jesus Christ, because he had all those things too. He had discipline, integrity and hard work. So remember Jesus Christ, because if we need any reason to stay faithful, we can look to him because he stayed faithful. And he's our example. He's our model of faithfulness. And when we're tempted to give up and to give in and say, this is just too hard, I just can't do it anymore. We're to remember Jesus and it puts a new perspective on everything because he remained faithful. So we remember him. And Paul himself's in jail and he doesn't want Timothy to be ashamed of him because of being in jail. So he says, remember that just as Paul's suffering, so did Jesus suffer too. We don't have to be ashamed that Jesus was arrested and tried as a criminal, put to death in a humiliating and shameful way on the cross. That doesn't embarrass us. We aren't ashamed of it. If anything, we glory in it, because that's something brought about something great, much greater than the trials that Jesus went through at the time that were temporary. And when we go through trials as well, when we go through suffering for the sake of Christ, we don't have to be ashamed of it. However shameful it may be and embarrassing it may be, we don't have to be ashamed of it. We don't have to be embarrassed by it, but we can glory in it, and we can see that what God is gonna do. So when we remember Jesus, risen from the dead even though he lost his life he came back again and if our life's in Christ and our life is safe in him and we're not going to lose it we're not going to lose it it may feel like it at times and it may happen at some point when we lay in a casket or are incapacitated by ill health or old age and we give up our earthly life but our eternal life continues and we have that hope Just as Jesus rose from the dead, then we will too. And our suffering is therefore not in vain. And Paul Paul points out in verse 8 that Jesus is a descendant of King David. What's David got to do with it? You may ask. David was the second king of Israel, of course, one that God picked as being after his own heart, that would listen to him in a way that the first king Saul wouldn't. So God chose David, a young shepherd boy of no account, no wealth, no power, no name. And he took him to be a giant killer and led him to the throne. And the scripture gives him the accolade. He was a man out of God's own heart. Then, after David, as the kingly line went on, it faltered and it lost its power as the successive kings ceased to, to follow God. But the line continued. The descendants continued. And Jesus was a descendant of the royal line. He still had the right to be king because of God's promise to David. And so we can see this parallel between David and Jesus. We see that the, the right was given to David and carried on through Jesus, even though, humanly speaking, he was a humble manual worker from a working-class family, from the backwater of Nazareth. Someone the authorities mocked as a country bumpkin. Can anything good come from Nazareth? They said, despite all these things, no, he had the right to be king. Something God had put in place a thousand years earlier. And God did set him up as a king, the king of kings. And even though he was executed as a criminal on a cross, even though he suffered, he had the royal blood in him. And he lives today as our king. So we remember Jesus Christ. We remember he rose again and he's the descendant of David and he's the king. And that this is my gospel. The word gospel, it means what? It means good news, right? It means good news. And specifically in this context, it means the good news about Jesus Christ. He says he's preaching this good news, that we have Jesus. We have so much bad news about all the time these days, but really none of it matters because the most important news is good news. The most impactful, the longest lasting, the most fundamental news is entirely good. It's that we have Jesus. Jesus, who's the rightful king, He died and rose again as the king of kings and he lives for us so that we can have a full life in him. And so Paul preaches this, not just through his words, but through his actions. Secondly, we're driven by a love for the message. Paul says, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Or was quite literally, physically chained. He was in a Roman prison. He was awaiting the death sentence. But he says, the word of God isn't bound. He might be, but that didn't restrict God's word, which would be spread despite of, or even because of, that fact. And, and the truth is that in this day, people in our culture and country and time and are not inclined to listen to us because we can't faithfully present the gospel without dealing with the issue of sin without calling people to repent, to turn from that sin, and to trust Christ. And that was unpopular in Paul's day 2,000 years ago, and if anything, it's even more unpopular now. And the temptation for the church, and for us as Christians who have to get along with our neighbours in a secular, multicultural culture, is to succumb to the effort of this world to bind the gospel, and to capitulate in the face of that opposition, and stay silent on these matters. Can't say it, to capitulate and to compromise. But this can't be true of us. There can be no uncertain sound from us. Because there's simply put no salvation other than by turning from your sin and trusting Christ by faith alone to be your saviour. So we famously read in John 14 verse 6, we read, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And of course the early church believed, and Paul taught as well, that they'd see persecution as a sign of God's favour. That they'd be found worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. Jesus' words recorded in Matthew 24 verse 9 say, Then they will deliver you over to be persecuted and killed, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. They really leave it in no doubt that becoming or being a Christian isn't a way of achieving a comfortable life. We're expected to stand up and stand out for the truth and not compromise it. So the question is, do we love the message enough to be, to the extent that we too are willing to suffer for it? Is there a truth that's worth going to jail for? Is there a love that's worth going to jail for? Paul thinks so. He thought it was worth it. And the challenge there is, is, what would you be willing to die for? What would you be willing to suffer for? What would you be willing to lose your career opportunities over? How valuable do you think the gospel is? Is it so inconsequential that it isn't really worth much of an effort? Or is it so fundamental that you think being able to share it and reach people with it is far more important than anything else you can do with your life? A couple of years ago, as a treat for my 40th birthday, Victoria and I visited Egypt on a Nile cruise parents kindly looked after the children for us and we had a few days in the sun going a bit Indiana Jones. So this is where I get to show my holiday snaps this time. And it was a wonderful break. If you get the chance, go. As, as holidays go, it really wasn't that expensive either. And we did the, all the touristy things. We rode on camels, we saw the temples and the pyramids and the Valley of the Kings and the museums. We went up in a hot air balloon at the dawn over the desert and made some of the freshest and tastiest homegrown fruit and vegetables I've ever tasted in my life, and it was fantastic. One of the things that sticks to my mind and comes back to me time after time was totally unexpected. We had some free time one afternoon, and exploring down a back alley in Luxor, we came across this sign. It was over an unassuming door with nothing much to show for it, but it clearly read, Brethren Church, Luxor. So we came back on the Sunday evening. There was no notice board, so we just turned up at half past six and hoped for the best. And sure enough, we were there in time for their evening communion service. We didn't have a letter, but after explaining the situation, the elders were more than happy to accept us and even asked a lovely young lady to translate for us. But we shared communion with them. What struck me was not so much the meeting, which was pretty amazing, but the fact that we arrived for the service, there was a policeman standing at the door armed with an AK-47. And our translator explained that a few months earlier, some Islamic militants had thrown a grenade through the door and it had gone off. So now they had a government guard. Not that he'll hang around if they come again, she said, but it didn't put them off. They met and five nights out of seven, there was a meeting of some sort in the building. They were afraid of the militants who could kill them, but their desire to meet together and to worship together and to listen to the word of God and to explore it together was greater than their fear. And they didn't let it put them off. The quiet courage was inspirational and to be honest it challenged me by taking our fellowship and our freedom to meet together as a church far far too much for granted and when our interpreter explained that she was a fully qualified nurse in the local hospital but because she was a Christian she'd never be promoted and would remain on the bottom grade for her entire career it drove it home to me. And we know that thousands, millions of people over the centuries have suffered and they've died for the sake of the good news. And yet they still persisted with the gospel. Now, just as an aside, we're hoping to open the church again from next week, God willing, and, but for our live morning service. And, and as I record this, that's the case, but I'm aware the law may change any moment and the decision may have to be postponed. But as elders, we feel the Lord's really telling us how important meeting together in person is. For maintaining the strength of the church and the strength of faith of individual members and our encouragement. And that's not to take anything at all away from these online services which would be a marvellous boon and kept us safe and kept us in touch with each other. But we're convinced that as time goes on, sitting at home watching a service on a screen is really not what church is all about. So while we aren't facing persecution, there's still an element of fear we have to face up to, if that's to work. There's a virus out there that could make us very ill could even the extreme kill us, and no-one fancies that prospect. Not for themselves, not for their loved ones. And we can do everything we can to try and mitigate the risk, and it's a very small chance, but it's impossible to avoid it completely. So even with all the hand-washing and the social distancing and the masks and everything like that in place in a 17-page long risk assessment that we've gone through, there is still, we can't deny, is still—we can't deny—is a chance of contracting the virus. And the chance of dying from it, if you did contract it, also remains, minuscule as it is for those of us that are reasonably healthy and not too old. So we have to ask ourselves, is our desire to meet together, to worship together, greater than our fear? I don't want to make too much of this. I certainly don't want to make any false equivalences between persecution and the coronavirus risk. The situations are entirely different. And also in balance, we we absolutely need to love our neighbours and care for the vulnerable in society and not pressure people to to get worried and anxious. So we each have to look to our own circumstances and weigh them up prayerfully before the Lord and balance our responsibility with desire and be honest with ourselves and the Lord. But the enemy, be aware, the enemy will use whatever tools he can to imprison us with fear. So as I was preparing this, the parallel struck me and it made me think and the Lord put something on my heart to say anyhow. We know that the blood of the martyrs has been spilled and the blood has been the seed of the church. When people have tried to stomp it out, tried to get rid of those awkward Christians who proclaim the name of Christ, history tells us that time after time it only caused the church to grow. For Jesus' name, for the gospel to be heard and believed by even more people, talked a lot about the persecuted church over the last few weeks as this book has led us and as a church we support the Barnabas Fund and many individuals within Regent support other organisations like Open Doors and Release International who help persecuted churches and Christians around the world. We pray for the persecuted regularly at our corporate prayer meetings and many of us have a heart for God's people who are persecuted around the world and hold them in our personal prayers as well. And we hear stories about how those Islamic extremists that have killed Christians have been tormented by the face of those they've killed and have turned to Christ themselves, like Paul himself did on the road to Damascus. Paul who led the persecution of the Christians in the very earliest days of the church. And rather than relishing their conquest over the Christians, they've turned to the side of those they were so recently violently against. Look at the church in China. It's thriving despite the worst of one of the most powerful and brutal communist regimes, the worst that can be thrown at it. It's growing in Iran and even in North Korea, under the noses and despite the best efforts of the evil regimes that would stop it. It outlasted communism and communism in, the Eastern, in Eastern Europe disappeared, even though it tried to stamp out Christianity as a faith. It happens. Standing up the Christ causes other people to be stronger in their faith and to come to know Christ. And now we know the end of the story. Things will get better and Christ will reign. But there will come times of trial and testing. But the word of God isn't bound by them. Can anyone put the Bible in prison? Can anyone stop God? Can anyone stop the truth? And Paul was confident that even though he's in prison, God's word was still going out and making a difference. So, finally, my third point. We're driven by our love for the mission. Paul says, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that's in Jesus Christ with eternal glory. See, we've got this privilege of being the ambassadors who are appointed to tell the world that there is salvation in Christ. And God's working through us to redeem a people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation. And so we can go in confidence Not because of our own wit, our wisdom, our winsomeness, as he might say. Not because of our ability, not because of our skill or strength, certainly. Because as Andy explained last week, those things are never strong enough and ultimately will fail. We go, though, because God is pleased to use us as his instruments. Instruments in the hand of the redeeming Saviour. We are to declare that there's salvation in no one and nothing else. Our passion as a church is to see people redeemed and reached and going on for Christ. Whether that's amongst our friends and family who we can invite to watch this service or come to services in small groups. Whether it's with our neighbours as we reach out in love through the cap centre or through sunbeams or coffee mornings or through our youth work to children or whether it's across the globe through individuals we support in prayer and financially in overseas mission. Wherever and whenever we can we want to use Whatever resources we have at our disposal to tell people the good news and to bring them into salvation and discipleship. We want to see the chairs filled and our building bursting, not because it makes us feel somehow more important, but because that means there's so many more people who the Lord's asked us to love who will be joining us in glory, not ending up in a lost eternity apart from us and apart from Him. So, every person taking part in the Christianity Explored course is a celebration. Every Christian growing in faith while they go through a discipleship course or a freedom in Christ course. Every baptism is a party. Every soul strengthened or saved is a victory as it's snatched from the fire. And for that we endure everything. Paul says, I will endure everything for the sake of the elect. Now, (laughs) the elect is a term we don't often hear talked about very often these days. It means those that have been chosen to come to Christ. there isn't really a time to get into the concept of predestination here how somehow god can choose us but we have free will it's a hard it's philosophical conundrum i mean the way i like to get my head around it is that we're given a free choice but but god who of course stands outside of space and time knows which way we're going to choose because he created us and he created time so we can't he knows what's going to happen It doesn't quite fully explain the concept, but it's the simplest way I know to think about it. And if anyone's got a better way, let me know. Anyhow, he says, if I have to sit in prison, then I'll do it. I'll do it. If that's part of God's plan to spread his word, then even though it doesn't seem to make sense, and I don't want to do it, I will do it. And Paul's presence in Rome turned out as part of how the church was established there, and strengthened in the heart of the capital city of the greatest empire the ancient world had ever known. And it led to being at the heart of a culture that would take it and lead to it spreading throughout the whole world. And the suffering that we go through in life may be taken by God and you may achieve more through our suffering than through our well-being. And we're pleased not to suffer as many churches and Christians do around the globe, but it still costs us much time and energy and money. But we're pleased to give it because it's the only way to change the world that will have any permanent effect. And we do it for Jesus' glory, not for our glory not for our self-esteem, because Paul says that they will obtain the salvation that's in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, eternal glory, momentary pain, but eternal glory. It's rough, it's tough, it's frightening, it hurts, but the glory will be eternal. For The Lord's going to share it with us forever and ever, momentary pain, momentary suffering in comparison with the big picture, I don't want to downplay it. I haven't gone through persecution myself. I'm in no position to appear to belittle it. It's incredibly tough, but it is momentary. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Our lives on this planet are short, but God's word is forever. People's souls are forever. So let's be about bringing those things together. Letting God's word impact on our lives so we can bring glory to God. And we can do it when, so when the time comes and we, we can stand before Jesus to account for our time on earth and we will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Because in thanks for everything he has done for us, we've been privileged to be able to share that blessing and bring glory to him. So I ask you now, if you don't know Jesus, If he's not your personal saviour, there's a chance to do it now. There's a chance to ask him into your life and to save you so you can take part in that eternal glory. Don't let that chance go.